Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 432, The Revolt of the Earls. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And this week, members are listening to an episode where we discuss how the ignoring of poor Emma at her own wedding is actually part of a larger trend among 11th century nobility. A trend where family becomes so important that it's actually more important than actual family members. And you can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Neil, Valerie, and Aneke for signing up already. It was 1075, and Waltheof, the last remaining English-born earl, wasn't in England. He was on a boat headed for Normandy. And when word of this trip reached Earls Roger and Ralph, they probably panicked. I think I would have. As we discussed last episode, this wedding probably wasn't a love match. It was likely a political alliance, and the goal was to build a power block, oust William, and claim the throne of England. And with ambitions this big, you had to have serious players at the table. And so Roger and Ralph had invited bishops, abbots, nobles, and magnates to this wedding. But much of the plan hinged on the support of Earl Waltheof. And for good reason. While Waltheof was English-born, he had links back to Denmark because his father, Seward, was a powerful earl under Canute. And while his family tree is a bit murky, it's likely that Waltheof through his father, was related to powerful Danish noblemen. I've even seen it theorized that he was related to Jarl Ulf, which would make him a relative of King Swain II of Denmark. You know, the guy currently sitting on the Danish throne. Now, without better records, we can't know precisely who Waltheof was related to, but he does appear to have had dynastic links to figures in the Danish court. And that fact was probably even more important to the rebellion than Waltheof's role as the Earl of Northumbria. Because the fellas, and probably Earl Ralph in particular, really wanted Danish support for this revolt. And a visit from Waltheof to that Danish court could help them get it. But while Waltheof was on a boat, he wasn't headed to Denmark. Like I said, he was headed to Normandy where William had been for at least the last year and a half. And actually, that long visit to Normandy was likely a big part of the reason why Ralph and Roger felt so emboldened. But Waltheof wasn't emboldened. Not at all. And so, following the advice of Lanfranc, he was planning, instead, to go and beg the king for mercy. And that was terrible news for the fellows. But it also raises a question... Why did Waltheof need the king's mercy? I mean, Orderic had wrote that Waltheof had refused to take part in the revolt. So if true, his only sins were one, being English, and two, being present at a wedding. At worst, being present at a messy wedding. And that just doesn't seem like enough to justify an emergency trip to France to throw yourself at the feet of the king. Maybe he was guilty of hiding a conspiracy against the king? thanks to that oath of secrecy. But considering that he immediately broke that oath, 
either to Lanfranc or to his wife, that doesn't seem to be all that damning either. So what gives? Well, Malmesbury, writing about 75 years later, claims that Orderick, Worcester, and the others actually got this story wrong. He claims that Waltheof was much more involved in this scheme to overthrow William than they imply. He tells us that at the wedding reception feast, Earl Roger and Earl Waltheof got treasonously drunk. And I'm not kidding here. He spends a few lines describing how hammered they got on wine. And then afterwards, he tells us, quote, Here Roger, Earl of Hereford, brother to the wife of Ralph, and here Waltheof, together with many others, conspired the death of the king, end quote. And then he says that once they sobered up on the following afternoon, Waltheof started to get a bit nervous about all that had been said and what they'd actually agreed to. And I've got to be honest, that sounds entirely plausible. I've had a few drunken nights in my life, and while I haven't plotted regicide, I've definitely done some things I've regretted the following day. And remember, while Worcester claims that it was Waltheof who ratted everyone out, Orderick specifically writes that Waltheof's wife, the niece of William, was the one who spilled the beans. And having a drunken night where things got a bit out of hand and then confessing it to your wife while you're in that guilt phase of the hangover? Well, that sounds totally believable to me. Though, to be fair, it is also plausible that Worcester had the right of it, and he confessed to Lanfranc himself. I mean, Waltheof had already seen multiple massacres, and I could totally imagine him taking part in a drunken rant fest, only to sober up and panic at the thought of what might happen once the king heard about it. In that situation... Traveling to beg for the king's mercy before word of his involvement got out and to confess that it was actually just a bunch of drunken nonsense had a certain logic to it. Now, unfortunately, given the nature of our records and how even the contemporary accounts argue with each other about how this went down, we're likely never going to know exactly who narked on the gang and why. But however you slice it, the Earl of Northumbria the rebel lord who had fought so fiercely at Hastings was abandoning a chance to revolt and was personally traveling to plead for the bastard's mercy. Meanwhile, back in England, Archbishop Lanfranc had a serious problem on his hands. Because while William was away, the priest appears to have been acting as regent, and under his watchful eye, a conspiracy had grown. A conspiracy that included William's best friend's son, his best friend's son-in-law, and his own nephew-in-law. And that's a lot of family drama. And William wasn't exactly the kind of guy to take family drama in stride. So would you want to be the guy in charge when this burst out into the public? Hardly. And so Lanfranc was doing his best to put the toothpaste back in the tube. He wrote to Roger, and he called the young man, quote, his dearest son and friend, end quote. And he didn't let on that he knew what the Earl was planning. Instead, Lanfranc framed his letter as a friend who just wanted to provide young Roger with some helpful guidance. The priest reminded him about his duty to protect the kingdom against the king's enemies, and also reminded him about his father, Fitz Osborne and how he had carried out that duty with incredible skill. You know, just as things to keep in mind. And then Lanfranc, 
likely trying to blunt the young Earl's anger, added that he was also recalling the sheriffs from Hereford, you know, until William could return to England and hear Roger's complaint about their presence. With that letter sent, Lanfranc waited for his dearest friend's reply, and hopefully an end to this madness. But Roger, well, it turns out that 18-year-old horse bros weren't all that interested in being pen pals with holy men in their late 60s. So he ignored the letter. And besides, he had a lot of work to do because Lanfranc hadn't fooled anybody with that letter. With the sudden departure of Waltheof for Normandy, it was obvious that the crown knew what was up. And so the little revolt that could was now in a scramble. This was looking bad. I mean, without even a single battle, this rebellion of the three earls had been reduced to the insurgency of the two earls. And to make matters worse, that letter definitely made it sound like William was planning on coming back to England. So the earls, already back at their respective earldoms, began raising their troops. Orderick tells us that Roger and Ralph, quote, rivaled each other in fortifying their castles, preparing arms, and mustering soldiers, sending frequent messengers far and near to their trusty adherents, and inviting, by entreaties and promises, all over whom they had any influence to aid their enterprise, end quote. But that is easier said than done. And it all takes a lot of time. You have to send messengers to the lesser lords under their command and ask them to provide soldiers. And considering that this was a treasonous plan for regicide that had been hammered out during a drunken wedding, and considering that the king was aware of it, well, it was a pretty tough sell. But the earls, either personally or through intermediaries, were trying to get their thanes, or what Lanfranc would call barons, to answer the call anyway. The trouble, though, was that even if everything went well and everyone mustered, they would still be terribly outnumbered. Especially considering that thanks to Waltheof's betrayal, it wasn't impossible that they would find themselves fighting against Northumbria rather than with them. Luckily, though, they had a solution for that. Denmark. Because while the Waltheof gambit had failed, he wasn't their only path to Scandinavian support. Roger's father, Fitz Osborne, had placed allies all over Hereford and had set them up with land that he'd snatched away from the English. And those new tenants provided Roger with links to a variety of European kingdoms, including Denmark. And Earl Ralph, for his part, was a cross-continental noble, and he was governing a Danelaw earldom. So both men had political channels through which they could convey messages to King Swain Estrithson of Denmark and ask for support. And that was exactly what they'd done. After all, if you're going to commit treason, you might as well go all in. Now, it's hard to know precisely when the messengers were sent. It's even plausible that they were in contact with Swain before the wedding. Either way, though, while the fellas were raising troops... Across the North Sea, King Swain and his boys were hearing about this rebellion and were looking at their ships and were thinking to themselves, it's time to get this party started. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lanfranc was growing concerned, and for good reason. 
These two malcontents had moved well past the talking tough on Facebook stage and were now in the buying zip ties on Amazon stage, which isn't good for anyone. By this point, Lan Frank was receiving word that these idiots were mustering troops, and there were even rumors that they were asking Swain f***ing Estherson to invade. Consequently, not long after that first letter, Lan Frank wrote another letter to Roger. In it, he again addressed Roger as his dearest son and friend. And in a very polite and respectful tone, which was probably wise considering that he was dealing with a young man who was raised in a chivalric culture, you know, where hurt feelings were more than enough justification for murder. Well, he tried to talk some sense into this kid. But this time, Lan Frank dropped the charade. He told Roger that it was time to knock it off and give up this crazy scheme. But he also seems to have given the Earl an out. And he let him know that if this was all just some slanderous rumor, then Roger should come to court and clear his name. And Lanfranc promised to provide safe passage for him in that event. However, Lanfranc was also no fool, and it must have been obvious by the action of the Earls that they really weren't backing off their plan anytime soon, and any indications to the contrary were probably just an effort to buy time. So while this letter was being written and sent, Lanfranc was also raising an army of his own. Hope for the pen pal, plan for the bloodbath. But Lanfranc didn't intend to lead this army himself. Instead, he placed the last surviving pre-conquest English bishop, Bishop Wolfstan of Worcester, at the head of it. And that was brilliant messaging. Having Wolfstan command this army would make it impossible for the rebels to frame their war as a war between the English and the Normans. After all, Wolfstan wasn't just English. He had been close with none other than Harold Godwinson himself. So this was a shrewd move. And as Wolfstan and Lanfranc were gathering their forces, so were Roger and Ralph. And ready or not, the rebellion was on. Because once a lord says he's down to clown, that lord is now a rebel, regardless of whether or not there's a formal combined army in the field yet. And Orderick tells us that, quote, it suddenly burst forth into open rebellion in all parts of England, and the opposition to the king's officers became general, end quote. Rebellion was once again everywhere. But it was also spotty. Based on the comments in the Chronicle and elsewhere, not everyone was on board with this plan. And for good reason. England had seen more than its share of rebellions over the last about a decade, and every single one of them had ended the same way, with noblemen abandoning the fight that they started and leaving their followers to be killed and mutilated by William and his knights. And people were getting sick of it. So... While the country, quote, suddenly burst forth into open rebellion, end quote, the scale of that rebellion was a bit smaller than the fellas had hoped. Probably a lot smaller, actually. Because the crown responded to all of this, not with war, but with legal threats. William de Warren and Richard Fitzgilbert were appointed as justiciaries. And they sent a summons where they ordered Roger to appear in court to answer for himself. They weren't going to war, they were going to court. 
Now, looking at all the efforts being made by Lanfranc and by the court, it seems clear to me that up to this point, the nobility in England had been playing nice. Due to Roger's dynasty and his status as an earl, they were all but saying, you know, just come down here and tell us that what you're doing is for a legal purpose, like defending your domain. And interestingly, commentary included in Lanfranc's letters and some other comments by Malmesbury also suggests that the powerful members of court would have happily blamed Ralph for all of this. All Roger probably needed to do here was tell them that he'd been influenced by the counsel of his new brother-in-law, and that at the end of the day, this was all his fault. Hell, Lanfranc pretty much says that himself. The problem is that this was a teenage boy who had launched a rebellion because he thought he deserved more respect. So he didn't want this leniency. He wanted to be treated like a man. But when he tried to assert himself, what he got in response was kind grandfatherly letters from a priest. And when he raised men to go to war, the majority of the court responded with essentially, hey kiddo, you really need to settle down and apologize because this whole thing right here is getting hard to watch. If Roger had felt emasculated before, Oh boy. And Roger was a lord raised in chivalry. This was an honor culture on steroids, and respect was everything, especially for young noblemen. So Roger wanted a fight, like he really wanted a fight. So he completely ignored the legal summons and the nice letters, and he continued trying to persuade people to join his rebellion. If he were alive today, I'd imagine he'd be posting about his plans on YouTube while spending his paycheck on camouflage backpacking gear. There's no getting away from it. It's cringy. And it was also a huge mistake. Because by refusing this legal summons, Roger had removed any fig leaf he had. This wasn't some rumor anymore. He was now in open defiance of the king. And as such, Richard Fitzgilbert and William de Warren were legally and culturally authorized to kick the crap out of Fitzosborne's little brat. And given that de Warren and Fitzgilbert were chivalric nobles themselves, I suspect that they were looking forward to this confrontation just as much as Roger was. So they too summoned their armies. So yeah, things were going great because at this point, pretty much everyone except for William had an army, even the clergy. But if de Warren and Fitzgilbert were hoping to fight Roger, they were going to be disappointed because Lanfranc's army, under the command of Bishop Wolfstan, was already headed west. And once Wolfstan and his forces reached Roger's lands, they joined together with the forces of Abbot Athelwig of Evesham, Sheriff Ursa of Worcester, and the noble land magnate Walter de Lacy, who held significant holdings in Hereford and each one of them had their own forces. Even the abbot. Because don't forget, abbots governed substantial secular estates as well as their own local monks. So we're talking about a large collection of soldiers drawn from the bishopric, the abbey, and the various secular authorities. And they were all drawn up from lands either near to or directly in Roger's domain of Herefordshire. Worcester even tells us that those soldiers were joined by, quote, a general muster of the people, end quote. 
So a broad assembly of fighters specifically raised from lands that Roger had hoped to recruit from. And instead, they were standing in support of the king. Ouch. Once they were all together, they advanced upon Roger. Kind of. Apparently, the court, or at least Lanfranc, was still trying to cut this kid some slack. Rather than crushing him, which I have no doubt they could have done, instead, they just marched up to the Severn and took position where they knew he could see them. The Archbishop's army simply aimed to, quote, prevent his fording of the Severn and the joining of his forces to those of Earl Ralph, end quote. There would be no heroic battle for Roger. I am honestly shocked at how far these people were willing to go to save Roger from himself. Meanwhile, far from the not-quite-a-battlefield, Lanfranc had a serious problem on his hands. Because by this point, everyone knew what was going on. I mean, this was the best gossip anyone had heard in months. So it was definitely spreading from every port, on both sides of the channel. Consequently, Lanfranc could be positive that William knew exactly how out of hand things had become. That this was well beyond a drunken speech at a wedding, and was instead outright treason. And betrayal was one of William's greatest fears, and also one of his greatest motivators. So the king sent a message back to England checking in, along the lines of, Hey Frank, I trusted you to handle things while I was dealing with folk in Maine, and the Pope assured me you were capable and worthy of your office. But, um... I'm hearing some troubling reports, so do you need me to come back and handle things? And it's never great when your boss asks if he needs to come and do your job for you, but when that boss is William, I shudder to think what his performance improvement plan would look like. So Lanfranc wrote back immediately, and in this letter, he tells William that he would love to see him. I mean, who wouldn't love to see the king? But no. No, 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 no. There's no need to visit England right now. Honestly, you are way too important to concern yourself with such a minor thing. And then, still giving Roger cover, Lanfranc goes on to blame the entire rebellion on Earl Ralph. Lanfranc names him Ralph the Traitor and tells William that he's gathered a force of oathbreakers. But, you know, don't worry about it because it's nothing that I can't handle. It's fine. Trust me, Bill. Everything is under control. Everything's fine. They're just basically a few bandits. Really, I got this. And this whole line, that this was no big deal and mostly Ralph's fault, is a consistent subtext or even overt statement in these letters, and it's also reflected in the Loyalist Army's actions. As such, this appears to be Lanfranc's entire approach to the crisis, and by extension, the court's approach. However, this narrative doesn't seem to be a reflection of reality because Roger was telling anyone who would listen very clearly that he, Roger, wanted to bring down William and that he, Roger, had very personal beefs with William. He was a big boy now and he was ready for big boy matters. And yet, Lanfranc continues to insist that Roger was fundamentally a loyal kiddo. And there's no record where Lanfranc explains why he simply refuses to believe 
or at least speak, the truth of Roger's betrayal during this period. But my guess is that his feelings stemmed from the fact that Roger was the son of William's best friend. And something about that fact, when combined with the current rebellion, simply did not compute for the archbishop, despite all the evidence before him. But even if Roger was innocent, he still would need a way to explain away all this treason that he was definitely committing. And so, enter Ralph. Whether or not it was true, in these letters, it's clear that the older Earl and the new husband of Emma was being framed as a devil incarnate and was responsible for, well, everything. But speaking of that devil incarnate, Ralph had finally completed his mustering and he was out in the field. John of Worcester tells us that he moved west, leaving East Anglia and eventually establishing a camp near Cambridge. We're not told the purpose of this camp, but my guess is that this was intended to be a meeting spot. The plan was probably to meet Roger here, join their forces together, and then march on London. Unfortunately, this camp wasn't as big as Ralph would have liked. The recruitment hadn't been going all that well in East Anglia. And historian Frank Barlow notes that the royal castles that dotted East Anglia seemed to have remained loyal to William. Like, all of them. And this not only deprived Ralph of a huge number of soldiers, it also meant that he had very few strategic hardpoints. And if those royal castles remained loyal, then you have to wonder how successful Ralph had been at recruiting amongst the lesser lords and common folk. Probably not great. So I bet Ralph was starting to get a bit nervous while he was at this camp in Cambridgeshire. But then an army appeared on the horizon. A big army. The kid had come through. Somehow, the kid had found a way to motivate the soldiers and even the knights to fight on their behalf. Wait, the knights? Why were there so many knights in that army? Oh, f According to John of Worcester, this army that was charging towards Ralph was led by the warlike bishops Odo of Bayeux and Geoffrey of Coutance. Now, the last time that we heard about these two, they were attending a synod on the continent, which means that either they returned to England on their own following that council, or William, having heard how things were going, dispatched his two most violent bishops, who also had a lot of experience ruthlessly crushing revolts, to go and handle the situation. And handle it, they did. Records say the bishops and their knights struck hard and fast. And Ralph, seeing the size of the army that was advancing upon him, turned tail and ran back to Norwich. But Odo and Geoffrey weren't the only Normans leading armies in the field. De Warren and Fitzgilbert were out there too. And it seems like the king's supporters were moving in a coordinated manner. Because as Ralph retreated, Orderic tells us that the second army caught up with the rebels on a field that he called Fagaduna. Now, we're not entirely sure where that was, but I've seen it theorized that it may have been near Beecham Well in Norfolk. I've also seen it suggested that it was actually Fakenham in Norfolk or perhaps Fakenham Magna in Suffolk. But wherever it was, Ralph wasn't able to evade this second army. 
he and whoever was with him were forced into battle. Orderic doesn't give us any details of the fighting that followed. Instead, he moves directly to the aftermath. Ralph was defeated, but again, he'd managed to flee, finally making his way back to Norwich. DeWarren and Fitzgilbert pursued him, but they were unable to capture him before he locked himself and whatever supporters he had with him behind the walls of the town's fortifications. Which, I'm sure, was a bit disappointing for the knights. But, hey, at least they knew exactly where Ralph was. So now, there was no need to have so many armies in the field. Instead, they could concentrate their forces and take part in one of the knights' favorite pastimes. A good old-fashioned siege. It was so popular that even Robert Mallet, the son of William Mallet, came down to join them. And presumably, he arrived with soldiers drawn from his vast estates, all eager to get a bit of chivalric glory. So things were going pretty well for William's boys. Though, at the same time, there was another matter they needed to handle. You see, in the fighting and the subsequent retreat the royal forces had captured prisoners. And those prisoners would need to be dealt with. De Warren and Fitzgilbert, as named justiciers, declared that every single prisoner, without any regard for rank, would be marked as a traitor. If you were an important lord with lots of land and power, you'd be marked as a traitor. If you were a peasant who didn't have any choice in the matter and you were just fighting because that powerful lord told you to, well, you would also be marked as a traitor. And how were you marked? The king's men cut off your right foot. Which meant that even if you survived the inevitable infection following a medieval amputation, you would be maimed, functionally unable to support yourself in a medieval economy. Now, many, and perhaps most of these men, had families. And so instead of having a whole adult helping provide... These families, at best, gained another dependent. For many people, this would push them into destitution. Or, if they were very lucky, reliance upon the support of extended family. This was a catastrophic punishment that struck not just the perpetrator, but entire communities. It was a deliberate form of terrorism intended to break the will of the rebellion. But it didn't. The rebels inside Norwich held a castle, and they still held that castle. And de Warren and Fitzgilbert recognized that, given the nature of castles, they were in for a long-ass siege. They also recognized that if a general uprising caught wind, that siege could fail, and then they would be in really deep trouble. So, while Lanfranc was insistent that everything was fine, they weren't so sure, so de Warren and Fitzgilbert went over Lanfranc's head and sent messengers to the boss and told William everything. The fact that Ralph had brought an army as far as Cambridge, that he'd fought them in the field, that he and his followers were still in rebellion, that they were holding a castle at Norwich, and Orderick's language suggests that it may have been actually quite a bit more than that. They also told him about how Roger had joined this rebellion, they spilled every last bean. And then they added that, yeah, William really was needed back in England. Desperately. 
And when Lanfranc learned of this message, I imagine his blood pressure reached a new height. But meanwhile, things in the East Anglian castle were looking pretty grim. The rebels were surrounded. The royal army was well supplied. The local support had been less than enthusiastic. And the Danes? Where the f*** were the Danes? It had been months. Hell, they had been holding off this siege alone for months. And speaking of that siege, they really could use some Danish support to lift it. But with every day that passed, it was becoming increasingly clear to Ralph that they weren't coming. And you can't spell disappointment without Danes. Look it up. You can't. So, facing this, Ralph decided he was going to take action. And he snuck out of the castle, and he boarded a ship. Ordering claims that he planned to go to Denmark to try and find some help. Worcester, on the other hand, tells us that he just decided to go home to Brittany. Either way, though, he basically looked at his new wife and pulled the, Hey, um, do you want anything? Because I'm going to go to the store and get some cigarettes. Right in the middle of a treason. So poor Emma, who appears in the record to have been kind of a passenger in this whole affair, and largely an afterthought for her own wedding, was suddenly a rebel leader. Not just a rebel leader, but the sole remaining leader of a rebellion that had been hatched during her wedding reception when her husband really should have been doing something else. Not cool. And according to the Chronicle and John of Worcester, she immediately opened negotiation with the king's forces because this was goddamn ridiculous. And in short order, terms were established. Emma and any who wished to follow her were allowed to leave England. The East Anglian Rebellion was over. And it wasn't long before word of this made its way west across the Severn to Roger's camp. And when it did, Roger decided, you know, maybe it's time to get around to writing back to my old friend, Lanfranc. And so he suggested that they get together and, you know, discuss this whole misunderstanding. And finally, finally, it seems like Lanfranc had enough. This kid's disrespect and disregard really was out of control. And for Lanfranc, it had gone too goddamn far. So he wrote a letter. He addresses this letter to his former dearest son and friend. I kid you not. He really did address Roger as a former friend, like they were having a fight in middle school. But after that's handled, he really unloads. He basically tells them, there's a world of difference between talking tough on your Facebook group and actually showing up to DC with zip ties, Roger. And he castigates the young girl for being a pig-headed, stupid fool and told him that, no, no, they're not going to hang out. We're not going to just talk this over. We're never, ever getting back together. And fully on a roll now, Lanfranc excommunicates the little shit. You can't sit with us, Roger. So this was definitely the last straw for the archbishop. But at the same time, even with the ranting and the excommunicating and the calling him a former friend, this still was Lanfranc. And for some reason, the elderly archbishop had a soft spot for this rebellious teen. 
and he really didn't want to see this particular rich kid suffering the consequences of his actions. If this happened today, Lanfranc would definitely be suggesting leniency due to affluenza. And so, he mitigates his entire pronouncement and offers Roger a deal that he would only be excommunicated until he apologized. But he also warns him that the king was f***ing furious. So, while he'll do what he can to help allay that fury, the kiddo better stay behind the Severn. And then, Lanfranc wrote another letter. This one to William where he informed the king that England had now been purged of what he calls the Breton shit, meaning Ralph. Hilarious. But then he goes on to be basically like, yeah, so don't worry about it. We've all got it in hand over here. It's fine. Everything's fine. But if Lanfranc thought this was going to stop the boss from coming into the office to carry out an eval, he was dead wrong. William had been hearing about this situation for months now, and it hadn't sounded good. I mean, armies had been in the field for at least three months by this point. And as luck would have it, in those intervening months, the situation in Maine had settled down. So William finally felt safe enough to leave it alone for a few minutes and check in with England. So he was on a boat. And in autumn of 1075, the King of England was actually in England. Weird. And he summoned all the most powerful nobles in the kingdom to his court. Because it was time to have a little chit-chat about what's been happening here in his absence. And everyone came. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. Even Waltheof, who I guess was on that boat with William, was there. And given how things have been going recently, I suspect that no one dared refuse his summons, including Roger, because right alongside everyone else was that rebel Earl. He'd left his sanctuary on the western side of the Severn and decided to attend this meeting. It was a big to-do. And I searched online for the name of an all-hands meeting of this type, and it suggested Group Groove Gathering and Cohesion Conference. So I know people are worried about artificial intelligence, but I think we're going to keep our jobs for a little bit longer. Anyway, at this group groove gathering, William addressed the lords of the kingdom, and he praised the loyalty and fidelity of those in attendance. Well, hold on. He praised the lords who had been faithful and had proven it through righteous action. But then he turned to those others in attendance the rebels. He demanded to know, quote, the reason why they preferred wrong to right, end quote. Now, Orderick writes that at this court, William held an inquiry, but that suggests that there was a search for facts. And William here sounds more like he was demanding a confession. This wasn't who stole my shiny red bike. It was what possessed you to steal my shiny red bike, you asshole? Wildly different circumstance here. And so if there was a trial, it was short. And sentences were handed out pretty quickly. Ralph, in absentia, was stripped of his lands and estates in England and was banished along with his wife, Emma. Though, considering that they'd already scampered to Brittany, that was a bit like firing someone who'd already quit. 
And to make matters worse, Ralph and Emma had properties back in Brittany, which William had no control over. Two castles, in fact. So their lifestyle wasn't all that impacted. For the most part, the only real consequence of the failed rebellion for those two was that they couldn't visit England anymore, which, given the continental views of England, probably wasn't all that much of a hardship for them. As for Emma's brother, Roger, well, despite Lanfranc's best efforts, he was finally called to the carpet to answer for himself. And, well, I don't think that Roger was all that courteous or conciliatory. Honestly, for reasons that I'll get to in a minute, I suspect that Roger had quite a bit to say and none of it helped his defense. And so Roger was stripped of his properties and titles, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment. But this was Roger, a kid that Lanfranc, and I assume others, were convinced had just gotten caught up with a bad crowd. So the court handled him very delicately. While Roger was imprisoned, it was likely a fairly cushy prison, not a dungeon. And Roger handled this kindness in a very Roger way. For example, later on, during Easter, it seems that the king was feeling bad about the fact that his friend's son couldn't celebrate the holidays at court. So he actually sent Roger a bunch of presents to help make up for it. William sent the young man who had tried to steal his throne and conspired to kill him a collection of fine robes, a surcoat, a silken tunic, and a fine ermine mantle. All very expensive gifts bought overseas. And Roger took these gifts and threw them into his fireplace. And Orderick presents this detail as just one example among many of Roger's general vibe. But something about this bonfire was actually the last straw for William. Because he declared that, quote, by God's light, he shall never get out of prison while I live, end quote. And actually, it seems like pretty much everyone but Lanfranc agreed that this kid was just kind of a dick. And so even after William died and a new king was crowned, Roger stayed right where he was. Which means that subsequent kings apparently added... That jackass will never get out of prison while I live either. And we don't know how long Roger lived, only that he outlived William and that he would eventually die in captivity. And it's a fact that's also confirmed by Malmesbury. So apparently, no one wanted to see this little shit in court again. But let's get back to the inquiry of 1075, because William wasn't done with the rebels yet. There were more people involved in this than Roger and Ralph. There were also quite a few lesser lords and followers who had joined the rebellion. And so they too received punishments. Worcester tells us, quote, Some he banished from England, and others he ignominiously punished by the loss of their eyes or hands. End quote. Now, the Chronicle claims that actually this part, the mutilation part, was done at the midwinter celebration, writing that apparently amidst the rest of the feasting, quote, some were punished with blindness, some were driven from the land, and some were towed to Scandinavia, end quote, indicating that they were sold as slaves. Festive. But 
Whether the mutilation was done immediately or during midwinter, it was a gruesome council. But it was nearly done. Nearly. You see, there was one more leader of this mess who had not yet explained himself. So the king called forth Earl Waltheof, the guy who had traveled personally to confess to the king and beg for his forgiveness. The guy who had either directly spilled the beans to Lanfranc himself or had done so through his wife, the king's niece. The guy who was, thanks to that marriage, family to William. You know, that Waltheof was called forward to explain his actions in open court. And you would think that, given all those factors, that his statement would be a formality and this whole thing would be swept under the rug. But this was William, a man who was profoundly distrustful and vengeful, even at the best of times, and a man who probably saw family relations as more of a negative than a positive. I mean, William's experience of family included stabbings in his childhood bedroom before he was even 10. So when Waltheof stepped forward, William, who had apparently hidden his feelings about the Earl during their time in Normandy, turned venomous. The king declared that on the testimony of his niece, Judith, Waltheof's wife, the Earl had been, quote, privy to and encouraged the conspiracy already spoken of, and thus was guilty of treason against his sovereign, end quote. We're told that Waltheof responded to the king's wrath without fear, and he admitted that Roger and Ralph had told them of their plot, but explained again that he had refused to take part in it. And the king responded by convicting Waltheof of treason. And this split the court wide open. Lords began panicking on behalf of Waltheof. Many had considered him in the clear. I mean, he'd not taken part in the rebellion, and he was showing remorse. It was a clear path for mercy, but William had no interest in mercy. And this was such a controversy that both Orderick and Worcester describe it in their writing. And in a surviving poem about Waltheof by Thorkell Scollison, there are lines describing William's betrayal of him. Even the Chronicle mentions the duplicity of William, telling us that when Waltheof confessed to William in Normandy, he, quote, let him off lightly until he came to England when he had him seized, end quote. And when the dry, terse scribes of the Chronicle take time to mention how this was handled, you know it was an unpopular move. And the records agree that William faced a political shitstorm for it. But William was William, and so he didn't budge. And when looking at the rebel leaders, there was a key difference between Roger and Waltheof. And no, it wasn't the fact that Waltheof had cooperated and refused to raise an army and had shown remorse. No, the difference between Roger and Waltheof was that Roger, for all his faults, was part of the club. And Waltheof was an English-born earl. The last one, in fact. And William wanted him gone. So, while Roger was sent to a cushy imprisonment with fancy clothes to burn, Waltheof was sentenced to execution. 
And this idea of executing Waltheoth outraged the members of court, and they demanded a chance to investigate this matter further. And after long arguments, it was decided that Waltheoth would be imprisoned at Winchester until this could all be settled. And so he was taken away in chains. Meanwhile, to the north, in Waltheoth's former earldom of Northumbria, some ships were spotted on the horizon. 200 ships. It was a flotilla, and it was led by King Swain of Denmark's own son, Canute, and the powerful Earl Hakon. After months and months and months of waiting for the Danish fleet, they had finally arrived. Just in time to discover that everyone was either dead, mutilated, imprisoned, or banished. Oh well, might as well make the best of a bad situation. And so they hopped off their ships, pillaged the barely rebuilt city of York, sacked the barely repaired Minster, and then sailed back off to Flanders to fence their loot. Great job, everyone. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to sign up for membership, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>